How They Train is brought to you by Pillar Performance. The feed is the official home of Pillar Performance in America, and it's the only place Pillar Performance is available to buy from if you live in America. And so if you're an American who listens to How They Train and hears me go on and on about how much Pillar Performance's triple magnesium has helped my sleep and wants to try it for yourself, then head to thefeed.com and grab yourself some. The best part is my discount code HTT20 works there as well. And that gets you 20% off all of your Pillar Performance products. It also helps support the show. I've been a terrible sleeper my whole life and it got to a point where it was really negatively affecting my training, my work and my relationships. And that's why I started buying Pillar Performance's Triple Magnesium for myself, just to see if it helped. And I seriously can't recommend it enough. If you've ever thought to yourself, I just don't think I fall asleep that easily or I don't feel refreshed when I wake up in the morning like I did every single night and every single morning, then trust me, try Pillar Performance for yourself head over to thefeed.com to grab it and use the discount code HTT20 to get yourself 20% off. Bjorn Giesman, welcome to How They Train. Triathlon is one of those sports that is completely inundated with coaches and experts. And because of that, it can be a bit hard to differentiate between, well, who is a good coach and who has absolutely no idea what they're talking about and has just labeled themselves as a coach. So when I get a coach on the show, I try really hard to make sure I only get the best in the sport so that you know what you're hearing is information you can really absorb every word of and trust. And you, Bjorn, are just that, one of the very best, but also maybe one of the most unknown coaches in the sport. So can you start by telling everyone who you are, who you coach, and what makes you the coach you are? Wow. Um, that's an introduction. Thank you. Um, and greetings to everybody listening. Um, if you're asking in that way, I would say I'm a sports scientist because that is what my profession is and what I, what I studied at university. So five years of sports science um, and have a master's degree in exercise science and coaching from the uh, German Sports University in Cologne. And um, I mean, now we can divide the way whether we talk about academic degrees or we talk about what is, in my opinion, important to be a coach. And um, second one I would put on the list um, linked to coaching is that I had some kind of mental coaching degree like four years ago, I think, from now on. And um, potentially next to the sports science academic degree, that's the the biggest one on the list, which helps me in daily coaching life, I would say. Um, and beside that, yeah, I'm from Hamburg in Germany. So like we talked about in uh, in the discussion before recording, like bad weather all day, um, never seen the sun since like six months and so on. Um, so living in Germany, coaching actually six athletes so six professional athletes um and always divided 50 50 so three women and three men um and next to the whole coaching i'm having an institute in germany with three locations in hamburg and munich and cologne where we do a lot of stuff like biomechanic analysis so like bike fittings and aero testings and performance testings and coachings and so on and so on um so and i think that's the the biggest or the easiest summary i can i can give you 
And who are those six athletes that you coach, Bjorn? Uh, ladies first. Um, Kat Matthews was here on your show, I think, like four weeks, six weeks ago, something like that. Um, Jocelyn McCauley from the U.S., hopefully uh, being back racing after a little, or not like a little, but like big injury and potentially starting in at the Ironman in Texas in, in like from now on like two or three weeks. Um, and then third one, uh, Daniela Bleime from, from Germany. And the boys are Patrick uh, Langi, Langi in, in English. Um, and then Jan Stratmann, um, pretty young German athlete. And Patrick Nielsen since... Wow, nine months, I would say, roundabouts, like mid of summer um, last year. So, and these are the 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 six pros I'm I'm coaching. Interestingly, I think it couldn't differ more when it comes to the actual tasks and training and whatever. Yeah, is is part of the whole coaching process. So, not like six in a row where you could say. This is the training plan. Follow it, and you're going to be successful. But very different task to do, especially in the next weeks and and or month potentially. So what I was thinking with you, Bjorn, because like I know a lot about you from consuming your content and and listening to what you have to say about the sport, and by also talking to these athletes that that you have um, that you have been coaching and what they tell me about you. And I was thinking, I'd love to get you on so that we can go a bit deeper than what I usually would and get really hands-on in the science and the detail of training and coaching triathlon, uh, which I, I often stay away from and try and keep it a little more surface level and a little bit easier to consume. But yeah, I wanted someone who, who I can nerd out with and and who the, the, the audience can listen to uh, and get everything they need to know with no details left out. And I thought how we could do it is we can just talk about everything that is triathlon. So we can talk about how to be a better swimmer, how to be a better cyclist, how to be a better runner, how to be a better triathlete, um, how to be a general better athlete. So um, let's start. Let's start with the swim. With your coaching and your your training philosophy, how do you help your athletes become better swimmers? I would say you start with the most... Um... Yeah, how, how can I say that? But with the most difficult discipline, potentially, when it comes to a special pro triathlon. So let's get like two, three steps back just to point out the philosophy you can have, which in professional triathlon is that you have a no, ch so to me, no chance to see my athletes from day to day to day. So to say that for swimming, to stand at the pool and have every six of them in the pool every morning, like I would say. But as pro triathlon, especially on mid and long distance course, is so, let's say, global, um, this one is out. This option is no option because it can be an option for sure. You have coaches who who have that, but then you are some kind of, yeah, let's say, limited on your location. So if I would say, guys, could you just move to Hamburg, which would doesn't make sense at all due to the weather. But if I would move to Mallorca, for example, where I'm at right now, and tell everyone else to move to Mallorca so that we can uh, meet at the pool every morning, then uh, that wouldn't work out because they are based in whatever, Austria, Germany, UK, USA, uh, Denmark in this case. Um, so therefore, that's not a point. And therefore, swimming is, let's say, difficult because it also depends a lot on where you are coming from in, in triathlon 
let's say, swimming. So take Patrick, for example. When we started working three and a half years ago, he already was a good swimmer. So no one who needed to learn swimming technique, for example, itself, but where we way more talk about, let's say, the management of the training stress, the management of integrating swimming into the rest um, the management also of the of the daily life, where to put swim in your daily life, how how much effort do you have to put in for also organizational reasons? So is it something where it's totally easy to, for you to enter a swimming pool or do you have to take into account whatever opening times and so on? So the topic is very, very difficult and big, I think. And honestly... I'm a big fan of the combination we have by now that some athletes or the most of the athletes have someone around also, let's say, not like potentially guiding the daily life, but sometimes also guiding the daily swim life. So they have a swim coach at their location where they train and they meet every morning or like five times a, a week. And then there's a feedback mechanism between swim coach and head coach. So like the swim coach and me, for example. Um, and this works out pretty well. And then it's a lot about, yeah, like I said, the whole, I mean, physiological training in swimming is, yeah, totally the same like in cycling or like in running. What you want to have is a big aerobic system. You need to have a good technique to have a good economy, sure, but you can test that and so on and so on. So therefore, it totally depends where you're coming from. And my approach, if I should summarize it in a sentence, I would say to, to bring guidance in concerning the whole stress management of training and integrating the swimming uh, into, into yeah, the normal daily training and then Again, it's the same as in the other disciplines about training effort, testing, so like evaluating if that works and if not, adapting and then again, training and evaluating. So like I do with every other discipline and yeah, pretty much check every, not like every week, but once in a while, if we are on the right way of improving performance. I'm really curious about swimming from an age group perspective as well, something that we, again, don't talk about a lot on this podcast, but the balance of how much someone should swim. So let's take the typical age grouper who isn't a very good swimmer. In fact, I think all age groupers would, would acknowledge this. As an age group triathlete, usually we're a pretty poor swimmer. So how much time should they be spent spending per week or per training block focused on their swimming relative to their bike or run if they're doing say a half Ironman or, or an Ironman when they are a poor swimmer how fast are they on an Ironman what are we talking about an hour 15 hour 20 let's not go let's just say let's say it's someone who say for a 70.3 swims between 30 minutes and 40 minutes pretty broad mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and then for Ironman obviously an hour and an hour and 20 yeah, because the question to me is always how much time can you gain for the competition? So, And what's your task on that one? Are we talking about a qualification for Kona where you have to take in, uh, into account every three disciplines and you have to be good in every discipline? Um, whereas if we're talking about finishing well, I mean, who says that going to the pool twice a week in winter, for example, let's say with eight to five months to go up until your long distance race, 
why at all swimming, just to make it very controversial, um, taking into account that the gross time you have for a swim session is, I would say, factor two, more or less, of the real net training time. So going to the swimming pool, dressing up, um, and so on, and then leaving again, going home, also the whole city traffic and what you ever have. So it's not like if it's not the easy way to go to the swimming pool. And therefore, the, the, the typical answer would be like two, three times a week, period. That's it. But on the other hand, I very often ask myself, why do we take this, yeah, let's say general advice common for everyone training for an Ironman, for example, or for a half-distance race um, or half-distance Ironman, why not thinking it very different from that one? Why not thinking about building up performance, let's say, for example, block-wise in the other disciplines like like cycling and running first in winter, uh, cutting off the gross training time for swimming, which is if you go two times a week, it's about like three and a half, four hours potentially you spend for these two hours of training, which you could invest, for example, into stepping on your smart trainer, putting it on, and then the gross time of one and a half hours of bike riding is like one hour, 35 minutes or one hour, 40 minutes if you take the shower within. And therefore, yeah, I'm a bit controversial about swimming in age groupers. I think it totally depends on what your goal is. So if you, again, want to qualify, you have to take it into account. And then potentially two times is not enough if you do not have a swimming background. And we talk about poor swimmers, like you said. On the other hand, I mean, if you are a poor swimmer, what is the potential you can you can manage to, to gain for the Ironman going to the pool three times a week from winter on? So are we talking about like 10 minutes? or like 15 minutes potentially, then I would say that aerodynamic testing and having a good bike position can bring you 15 minutes within like six hours of an aero test, whereas swimming needs three times a week gross time of maybe five hours a week for that one from winter on. So way more time um, if you combine that with the effort you have and the the outcome of it and therefore I'm, I'm as you can see i'm a bit controversial about that one on my own i would make it dependent on who i have in front of me and potentially also the circumstances him or her need to for example go to the pool and rethinking also taking into account um about the other disciplines are we also having an an average bike rider, let's say, where we potentially have the chance with very good efforts in winter to make him from average to minimum good, for example, which is definitely possible, physiological training, easy, let's say. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 do, I do not have that one answer, but there are, let's say, let's do it positive. There are a few answers. And I'm a fan of, like in every training potentially, whether it's age group athletes, pro athletes, whether we talk about swim, bike and run athletic training, let's include that, um, nutrition and so on. Just rethink it every time and think about if this really is a thing you would do to develop yourself on an individual way or is it, is it something where you just go to the swimming pool two times a week because all the other athletes do that. 
I don't know. And you said that in an ideal world, an athlete should have a swimming coach or someone on pool deck who's prescribing the program and watching over them to sort of make comments on technique and correct technique. But let's say in a hypothetical world, that's not possible to someone or someone just simply does not want to do that. What's what's important for someone to incorporate into their training? Is it quality over quantity or are you a volume guy? The question is what quality is. I mean, if we would would make swim quality equal to technique, then we always need to take into account if that is possible on your own. And if we take the example of not having a swim coach, which is an absolute legit one, um, then I would say quality work at swimming can also mean just be the volume and intensity guy, let's say. So something in between where we just come over the effort and not about this and this and this drill um, and technique workout and so on, but just go like in cycling, you would do the same. You have endurance-based training, you add intensities, and then it's about the volume. And then you can ask yourself how much training stress you can do or how much energy you could expend, for example, in a week or whatsoever. And why do we not do the same in swimming? Just to point out, forget about all the technique drills if no one is watching, let's say, um, and just do the work like 100 meters, 15 times, warm up before, cool down after, have a break in between the 100 meters and just go for physiological training. And I would say, if we can say that, like physiological training, for sure, a drill can also be some kind of physiological, has a physiological impact, but is more on the technique economy side. And And therefore, I would say that's totally possible. And then I would be the one saying that it swimming comes from swimming just five euros into the just a typical german sentence um and uh, swimming comes from swimming and volume and intensity is is the one and then you just have to consider how much you want to have from intensity and volume and you just try to yeah go up to the potential in a positive way, limit of what what the athlete can can do to keep the stress still in balance, and then yeah, go go ahead for a hundred meters, two hundred meters, four hundred meters, swim whatever, three times a thousand meters with intensity in let's say somewhere around eighty ninety percent of your threshold. Have a volume of if you're an age group athlete like two three times a week of four to four and a half k. And then you definitely gonna improve. That's for sure. And now onto the bike. What do you like? We'll start broad and we'll work our way in with all of these things. How do you think that people can become the best cyclists they can possibly be as triathletes? Um, know your physiological base. So know your own data. Have individual training, um, and then go for a. For sure, physiological training. So definitely biking is the, how can I say that, potentially the easiest discipline as you do not have to care about any kind of economy. I mean, economy in running and in swimming means that you have to fight against, yeah, let's let's say the, the technique you're using. So your running technique can be, or economy can be good or bad. And then you have to deal with it and then you can improve it for sure. But in cycling, cycling is a very, let's say, easy sport. You know what I mean, hopefully. So I don't want to 
uh, offend anyone um, just being a cyclist or somewhere else, but um, you do not have to do anything more than click your sh your foot, put your foot in the shoe, click it into the pedal, and then turn it around 360 degrees. There's nothing about a big effort of technique or you can you have to handle or you can improve or whatsoever. So therefore, easy. Then it's a lot about physiology. So increasing the physiological parameters you are potentially having, yeah, potential in. Um, and then do not forget about when it comes to not like the technique we are talking about concerning running and swimming. So your own one, uh, metabolic wise, for example, but the technique you're riding your bike. I mean, it gets more and more important if we take a look at this year's Ironman World Championship in Nice. And if you take a look at the course, you have to be some kind of a good bike rider if you want to, for example, win that World Championship um, because you can't be the one the that's swift guy who's never going out to train who can't ride corners who can't ride downhill and so on because then i think you'll have a potential lack of yeah like performance on on that course due to your missing technique but yeah in the end i mean physiological uh potentials in, in especially on the bike are pretty easy to detect and then ride, bike riding or the physiological aspects behind riding your bike are pretty easy to find out. So what you have to care for is your oxidative system. What you have to care for is your lactate production. What you have to care for is where your threshold is at. What you have to care for is your fat metabolism, which is directly linked to your threshold. And then... I mean, numbers tell a lot about your cycling performance and you can easily test it within every training ride if you want to um, and just make that one obvious, your own physiological data and how to train them. So to break that down a little bit, let's focus on like those key physiological parameters that you've talked about as, as being what will sort of um, limit your, your cycling performance. How do we make our aerobic system as strong as it can possibly be? Or, like, or how do we make our VO2 max as high as possible? Um, I mean, let's take into account that the oxidative system has different signal transduction ways to use to adapt. So what you have to do is to find these signal transduction ways and to trigger them, let's say, and the more, if we want to do it easy, the more you trigger them, the more adaption you you would likely to have. Um, and then it's up to, for sure, volume is a big thing. So we can't skip volume if we want to have a big adaption in the oxidative system because what volume does, and we need to always take that into account, especially, and I'm a bit criticizing by now, if we talk any kind of whatever high intensity training and so on and so on, take the effort over time and take into account how much accumulation of, for example, oxygen you uh, use while riding your bike for five hours in your A1 zone, let's say. So easy endurance-based training but due to the volume, a lot of oxygen usage ac accumulates and therefore the potential for an adaptation is pretty high. 
then for sure what the problem or the task, let's say, we have in professional triathlon, for example, is that you can't ride your bike for like 30 or 35 hours as you have to do minimum two other disciplines to bring in. Um, and therefore, the less volume you can use, the more intensity you can put in. And intensity, when it comes to intensity, for sure, we can talk about whatever, zone two, we can talk about thresholds, we can talk about high intensity. And in the end, bringing this whole stuff together, it's just about the training stress balance. And from my perspective, I would say that, for example, high intensity is likely and also scientific wise clear that it improves your oxidative system. But if you see the training stress occurring out of high intensity training, then I'm very unsure if that's really a big thing in a training week of let's say 30 to 35 hours in professional triathlon because 35 hours is already a real big block of also training stress, not only of volume, but also training stress, especially if it's a combination of swimming and biking and running. And therefore, what I like to do is to have several threshold intervals because especially metabolical-wise and therefore training stress-wise, we are, yes, definitely missing out the potential of even more adaptation, let's say. So we are missing out the potential high intensity has as a signaling way. But on the other hand, training stress is very controlled. So you do not have to be worried about whatever, putting in like, let's say, two workouts per discipline per week, including uh, some kind of threshold training. Whether you do that with high intensity training, I'm not 100% sure if that would work out. So sometimes I'm using it. It definitely depends, for example, of the age and the training age of the athlete, the physiological profile and so on. But on the other hand, keeping training stress in balance is, is always the biggest task you need to have because then we talk about if you have that and if you can, if if you have training stress in balance from week to week to week, which means that sometimes it's a harder week for sure and there's more training stress than easy balance of it. Um, but always take into account that the better you have training stress and balance, the better you can have consistency in training and have like 47 weeks a year having 30 hours of training in an ideal world for sure. Um, and not being injured, for example, is a big thing on that one. So I would definitely include this. Take Patrick, for example, um, as a good example of consistency in training. If I would need to number the the workouts in running he was missing in the last three and a half years, one hand would definitely be enough. So I remember a time like one and a half years ago when he had small problems where we skipped like three, four, five runs. That's it. Nothing more. Um, and therefore, consistency is a good parameter to increase VO2 max, for example. Training volume is, intensity also is, and then it depends just on the stress you want to applicate on your athlete. I always talk about the fact that I think about five, six, seven years ago, there was a little bit of a push towards 
um, a quality over quantity approach to training. So a lot of people were doing highly polarized training, like lots of very high intensity work, lots of very easy work with a little bit of a reduction um, in overall volume compared to uh, other eras of triathlon where volume was king. And then it seems like um, at the moment with maybe Jan Frodeno, the Norwegians, lots of other people, Sam Laidlow, Magnus Ditliv, these guys have really brought, brought back an approach of, hey, we train very, very high volumes and we're open about that. We don't believe in this like 20 hours a week, really high quality, um, really polarized training approach. And it sounds like what you're saying is the same. It sounds like you think that volume is volume and consistency are the two main, um, like all the, the two most important ingredients in any training program. I would say yes, but maybe a small criticism about the word quality. I mean, who tells us that any kind of intensity means quality? If if you have too much of high intensity it's not quality anymore if you can't handle the training stress. Then you're having a lack of quality into your training because you're not keeping training stress into balance. And therefore, I would say quality more or less will, will be defined better as training application or training, let's say, in general, which improves your performance while training stress is in balance to still keep the consistency. Um, and not being injured and not being overtrained and not being ill too often, for example, and not having problems with your energy availability and so on and so on. So I would say quality comes from not only the question about volume and intensity, but quality comes about uh, comes from also taking into account all the circumstances that help you to improve your performance. So let's put nutrition in. You can have... Why, not like a question, like a critical question, but you can have a very qualitative endurance-based session in the morning where you sit one hour on your smart trainer without having carbohydrates in the morning, for example, to decrease potentially your anaerobic system, to higher your fat metabolism, to higher your threshold. And that could be a very, very good workout, potentially, where we would normally say, I mean, an hour of endurance-based training, what are you doing there? But what you are doing is bringing in a good of good quality because you took into account that nutrition is also a thing you have to take into account when we talk about quality and training. And so can we do with when it comes to recovery rest day. I mean, we could speak two hours about a rest day, potentially, in my opinion, as we are very often forgetting about the aspects of really having a rest day and giving the body the time to adapt to what we did in training before. So whether we talk about volume intensity, high intensity, polarized training, whatsoever, always take into account that resting and giving the body enough time to adapt to whatever you did before is, in my opinion, one of the most important aspects. So today we are in the training camp. We have a rest day today. And what the athletes are doing, they get the advice to please be so concentrated on your rest day that you're having some kind of schedule that allows you to take a very long nap at the mid of the day. So best case, you sleep one and a half hours between, let's say, 1 to 3 p.m., for example. And that would definitely hire the quality, not only from your past training block you had, but also from the training block, which is in advance from tomorrow on, because 
you are well rested, you can potentially deal with whatever volume and in intensity even more. And yeah, long story short, but that's what I definitely always would include about when it comes to quality training, let's say, or quality in training, because it's not only about the question, are we talking about like, 70 or 80% of your VO2 max. Are we talking about threshold uh, intervals or is it 120% of your threshold? For sure, physiological-wise, way different impacts when it comes to 100% threshold or 115% threshold. So the difference doesn't sound a lot, but physiological-wise or let's say metabolical-wise or in addition, if you have more and more training sessions like that, also hormonal-wise, we are talking about big difference, whether it's 100 or 115% of your threshold. But on the other hand, I would always take into account that, for example, nutrition, recovery, sleep, whatsoever, has a big, big impact on quality in training. And therefore, I would define it maybe sometimes more in general to say that improving performance under whatever, keeping the consistency due to being injury-free, but on the other hand, also, not only in general, but really digging into the details about what is important to hire the quality in training. And it's not only the question about distribution of training zones. That's, yeah, let's say for sure a thing where quality comes from, but definitely not the only key to, to bring quality into training. So with, with cycling... I think it's one of those things in, in age group triathlon particularly, but it even shows itself in professional triathlon a little bit where there's less variance between athletes. So in swimming, we see some age groupers and some professionals who are really good swimmers. And we see some age groupers and some professionals who are really bad swimmers. And the, the, the thing with that is they might put fairly similar amounts of time into their swim training at the moment. And same with running. We see some people who they can try as hard as someone who's running faster than them in training. They just don't seem to get to get become as good as them, even if they're putting in the same amount of time and effort. And you've sort of touched on a little bit with swimming, where swimming economy matters and, and running economy matters, and there's other factors that make you faster. Whereas with cycling, you said cycling economy isn't it doesn't it's not not only does it not matter, it's really not even as much of a thing. And maybe that's um, that's why we don't see these big differences in level of cyclists in the professional um, ranks and in the age group ranks. So do you think it's what we should be spending a lot of time on, given that if you put in the time and the effort, you will get better at it relative to the other two? So should we be doing our longer rides longer? Should we be doing as much weekly volume as possible on the bike and, and, and trying to get, you know, take an hour or two out of our swimming and add it onto our long ride or add it into our interval sessions on the bike during the week? Um, more or less, yes. And then let's include in this, this discussion that potentially, especially if you compare running to cycling, that you do not have the impact. So the impact of running, which always has some kind of potential or risk to, or a higher risk, let's say, than cycling could ever have of getting an injury or an overuse of whatsoever, your ligaments and so on and so on, your bones especially, um, and therefore, I would say that when it comes to volume on the bike, I mean, why not filling up, let's say, a week with bike volume to 100% of your 
potential time you can spend in training because it's nearly risky free. Um, the only thing you have to do is taking into account, for example, nutritional intake, so like energy intake to be safe on the expenditure side so that you have enough energy availability. For sure, you can't ride your bike for, let's say, 30 hours a week. So there's always a limiting factor in overall general volume, let's say, due to especially also energy availability. So I would definitely put a mark on that one that it's a very important thing to have. And then, yeah, why not? So there's nothing to, to say against a moderate intensity included in your in your bike volume and then for sure bike volume is very important so why not riding a bike for like five hours on the weekend so if you have the time if you still have enough time for resting if you can do it without any stress factors concerning let's say daily life what we want to call um, and then I would say yeah what there, there's definitely no point where you could say that let's say from three hours to five hours, the risk is whatever doubled to get any injury. Whereas again, compared to running, I wouldn't say the same about running volume because I think it's a huge difference if you are running, let's say as an age group athlete, let's do that example and not only talk about pro athletes, but if you're running like three, four times a week, which is definitely a solid amount of running sessions and every session has like 45 to 60 minutes, for example, then you're already running potentially up to four hours a week where you could have like 40 or let's say 35 to 50, 55 Ks per, per week, um, which in my opinion definitely is a solid amount of volume of running for an age group athlete. And I would say that pretty much comes near a limiting factor where you can still say, okay, 40 Ks is fine if you keep training stress in balance. If we would talk about 80 Ks, for example, so double the volume, then I would definitely think of that being a very risky thing to do um, because 80 Ks for an age group athlete with having all the impact all the time and so on. Wow, that's that's potentially. I don't. I do not want to say too much. If you have time and whatsoever are an experienced runner, then it's fine. But as a general advice, I would say that be aware of the risk of running volume. So where I would say that from three to five hours for a workout in 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 riding your bike, yeah, just go for it and have fun. On the other hand. Uh, extending your run from one to two hour or even from one and a half to a two hour run, I mean, the risk of any injuries, and I don't want to make it too, or don't want to sound too risky in that case, but um, I would say that the potential of losing economy, losing technique just within the run due to a lack of, for example, energy, carbohydrates, and so on, and then risking any kind of injury because you always have this impact and this impact is still there even if your technique or economy or whatsoever gets lower and lower from time to time within this run, I would say that you are pretty much hiring the risk in an, let's say, exponential way compared to what you would do in cycling. So therefore, yeah, go Go, go for good running volume, have fun on the bike, not only be on the smart trainer, but go out on the road 
to to also improve your uphill downhill whatsoever technique and and yeah and then you can do that without big risks of any kind of injuries for example due to impact just fuel yourself well and then it's fine so on this if you say that 35 kilometers to say 50 or 60 kilometers a week you consider a very um, good volume of weekly running and that if you're there you probably don't have to try and push that to 80k a week or 100k a week because the risk becomes quite a bit higher than the reward does that mean that you would advise people to try and get their training to to be running 30 to 50k a week or 35 to 60k a week and once you're there sort of just stop like you know don't do any more and just do that for years on years or are you still trying to get people to progressively overload that once they get there what did patrick say how many k's he's running a week when he was on your podcast do you remember yeah like 60k a week yeah so in in 60 k's a week is enough in average um to run a 230 marathon after after swim and bike so therefore i mean not in general i would say so you you can't apply that on everyone running 60 k's a week but if I'm writing down a training plan, let's let's make it very practical. Then, th especially on running, there are some kind of aspects I take into account to make it more risk uh, risk free. Let's say so. Let's do an example. If you have running from day to day, I would say that two days in a row with a run session is, in my opinion, nearly enough. So only very rare i would use three running days in a row just to be safe that you always have the chance to recover from one run or the other one uh, on the second day and be safe that not only let's say your running legs whatever that includes so not only the muscles with which is one thing but all the other passive structures which have to deal with the impact can recover re well from 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 the running sessions and if you would do that like two running workouts in a row then you would point out that i think it's some kind of a maximum of two times two running sessions within a week so like running on tuesday and wednesday having a let's say run rest day on thursday running again on friday and saturday for example just as a very practical example and in my opinion the risk of anything, of any injury or what else, is tremendously reduced by just having two run sessions in a row and not have the third one on top. I have that in training camp by now here with an athlete where we are doing three run sessions in a row on three days for every day one and a half hour. So we talk about a volume of four and a half hours on three days. But... The reason for that is I'm here. I can look at his face, see him in the morning, in the afternoon, right before the session. I follow his sessions on the bike. And then I can every time have an impact on that one just to be safe that, for example, the third run in, in a row is a very, very low run. So we just talk about whatever, 4.15 minutes per K, for example. So a very easy one. Um, and then I can be safe that this one is pretty risk-free as I can follow him nearly every minute. If I would just write it down on a training plan then and without seeing him, then I would want to make it 
risky, risky free, let's say, or less risky. Um, and then I would just have two sessions in a row, a break in between and two sessions in a row. So just to be safe. And therefore, I think um, if you then take into account about running volume, and if you have that, no matter if you're a professional athlete or an age group athlete, you could do the same as an age group athlete if you have like, whatever, 12 to 15 hours of time per week. That should be enough. And then you can include three or four running sessions of an hour, let's say in average. And then you have this method applicated to have just two running days in a row. And I think if you then bring quality in um, due to intensity distribution, due to fueling, especially uh, pre and post the sessions, if you have good mobility work before the session, especially, and potentially after, a lot of stuff to secure the quality of the run sessions. Um, take into account how much training you already had on that day. So are we talking about, especially in triathlon, about a brick run of 45 minutes? Or are we talking about um, just having a very easy two-hour bike sessions before uh, before the run and then being even even, let's say, better warmed up before you start the run session? And, and then, yeah, and then I would say just bring the quality in. And if you have the quality in these, let's say, three to four run sessions, say pointing out that you have for sure some kind of intensity, don't make the same fault a lot of marathon runners are doing to just run at the speed you're feeling well at. So that's like the typical just no no offending in, in in any kind of way to marathon runners but the typical marathon run session is like i go out i start running and then i settle at the pace where i feel fine with and do not do that take into account that several intensities need to be there to adapt physiology that need to be there to adapt your economy especially and running economy itself is something where you need some kind of quality in run training in otherwise maybe you also can have a lack of economy and your running performance even gets worse so therefore i would say yes just even if i would be an age group athlete pick yourself these principles like maximum two sessions in a row uh, and all the quality stuff around whether it's nutrition and so on recovery mobility um, activation, some kind of activate your glutes before you start the run, please, to just be safe that you are using them while running. Um, and if you keep these principles, then it's definitely enough to have like three to four sessions a week for sure. Then you can potentially think of the long run, whatever that means. I mean, if we would ask 100 triathletes, we would have 100 different definitions about what a long run is. Um, but sure, you can add some kind of these, let's say, add-ons, uh, uh, in a consistent week, I would say three, four sessions, 45 to an hour, maybe an hour, 15. That's definitely enough. You do not need to have like four times one and a half hour. And then you could be pretty safe that it's a quality and let's say less risky. I don't want to say risky free for sure, um, but less risky um, Yeah, training procedure of, of your running. So when you say we have to touch on um, all different zones when we run to get the, um, the physiological and the economical benefits that, that we need to become the best runner we can be, what do you exactly mean by that? So, for example, how, how far should we be doing our easy running? 
what sessions should we be doing? How far should we, we be, should we be sprinting or should we just be running at sort of race-specific pace to get those improvements in um, both physiological and um, economical parameters? Or, yeah, explain that a little bit more. Um, one step back and just to make it even more complicated, but then I have some solutions for it, don't worry. Um <laughs> If you take running economy, so let's just define what we are talking about when it comes to running economy. Running economy means you are running at a certain velocity and you have a certain amount of oxygen needed to run at that pace. And like driving a car where you have to drive a certain velocity, you would always pick the car which needs less fuel to go for that velocity as you have to go to the gas station more rare. So, and the same it is in running and running economy. We are talking about oxygen usage at a certain velocity and the less oxygen you use, the better it is because the less oxygen you use, the less energy you expend, which saves your energy, which saves your carbohydrate stores, which can enable you to at the same oxygen usage, run faster, for example. And that's the definition of running economy. Easy as that, we have to point out that improving running economy is an absolute black box. No one can tell me that for every individual, he from point one on has the exact strategy about improving running economy. As running economy, and we definitely need to define that also, does not have to do with running technique itself. So does it look good? Yes. Then it's a good running economy? No. Potentially, yes. So the for sure, the better what we would call a good technique, the better it is, the better it is also in running economy. But why do we think of, and kudos to him, why do we think of Lionel Sanders, for example, not having a good running economy so for sure, we would say it's not the best technique ever with which he's running. But on the other hand, he can run pretty fast with that technique. So potentially, he has a pretty good running economy as he applicated himself to a good running economy, let's say even with this technique, no criticism at all. So just like absolutely compliments on what he achieved with that technique which in my opinion can not only be about an improvement of the oxidative system, for example, he can't have a VO2 max of 95 and therefore his running economy definitely will be, I would say minimum good, potentially not very good, but good. And therefore improving running economy is an absolute black box. You could achieve that with easy running volume. So like, let me get back to my marathon runners before they have a higher running volume potentially than the typical pro, uh, than the typical uh, triathlete on the long distance course, for example. Therefore, uh, running economy at their well-being uh, velocity could potentially be fine due to the running volume. The question then will be how their economy will be at different velocities. And if we would rate running economy, you can have, in my opinion, 
two classifications of it where you would say one is the absolute running economy you have and the reference, for example, in professional sports or professional triathlon, let's say. So you could take the running economy from Patrick and compare it to the running economy or to whatever, Gustav and Jan and Christian and whatever you want to have. And you could definitely say that one is better than the other, whoever it is by now. The other one is that you can also internally compare your running economy at a certain velocity to your running economy at a different velocity. So potentially it can be that running at, sorry for German or European numbers, but running at like four minutes per K is at a very good running economy. But if it comes to race pace, marathon after bike, and we talk about 3.30 potentially, could be a fast marathon, the question will be, if your running economy, your own one, even compared to your own running economy, is still as good as if you would be running four minutes per K. And this is something like every time in training you have to find out. And the more black box you have, the more important, in my opinion, it is to always train, evaluate, and train, evaluate. Because especially for running economy, you can't say that why not potentially keeping your volume, doing everything the same like what you did with intensity and trust balance management and so on, but just adding some kind of, let's say, plyometrics, for example, as we know from the scientific part that plyometrics are absolutely beneficial in running economy in average. The problem is that if we talk about a pro athlete, for example, or even an age group athlete, we are always talking about individuals. So we can't say that 100% plyometrics will be the beneficial thing in training you can do to, to hire your running economy. Higher means making it better. So not like more oxygen, but less ox oxygen, which is better, therefore higher, just to explain it. And as it's a black box, we'll always have to take into account that we have to find an individual solution for it. And then we can define how much we need of volume, different intensities, uh, plyometrics, potentially maximum strength training. So intramuscular training, for example, taking the really big weights and lifting it and having squats with that could potentially be a thing hiring your running economy. What you then have to take into account is the overall stress balance. Can you cope with like two, three maximum strength sessions in a week? Or does it maybe be absolutely disbalancing your whole training life so that you skip that one and potentially try the one with the volume, for example? And therefore... Yeah, so that's a that's a big thing you have to take into account as we definitely talk about a black box. So training and testing is a big thing. And then testing is also, just to say that, is also a thing which has to be done right, where I'm a big fan of having a good running economy test as you'll have to take into account, for example, body weight if you want to evaluate your VO2. So we always talk about relative values, like VO2 max is a relative value if we say it's 85, and then it's 85 milliliters per minute per kilogram body weight. So if you would lose or gain weight within a season, for example, you have to take it into account. And what you then have to take it into account if you want to evaluate your running economy, you said we want to dig deeper, right, in physiology so that... I'll just continue, interrupt me whenever it's too deep. Um, but what you then want to have is 
to also check running economy depending on the metabolism you're in because it's clear that the more fat metabolism you have actually the more oxygen you need as fat metabolism needs more oxygen than carbohydrate metabolism so whenever your relative intensity is getting lower and lower and lower the oxygen potentially does maybe not get lower in the level you would expect it because more oxygen is needed to have a good fat metabolism in that case. So therefore, doing the testing right is also a thing which which has to be taken into account that it's not that easy. So you can't say, no offending again, but you can't say, I'm taking a stride power meter, checking my power output at a certain velocity, and then checking rechecking it in two months and then checking if the power output at the same velocity is still the same or if I, whatever, improved my technique to make it better, that doesn't work. So my opinion on that one. So that's not scientifically valid in any kind of way. So therefore, that's not the thing. And yeah, I mean, then what comes out of a black box, if you if you know that running economy is a black box, then the training application is trial and error. So that's what you have to do. And the easiest trial for sure in triathlon is go over volume itself because the more volume you have, the stiffer, for example, your ligaments get and so on and so on due to the impact. So therefore, that definitely does make sense. Um, if we talk about intensity, that's definitely a key point in improving running economy because at certain intensities, you have not only certain energy metabolism ways you are needing for this intensity, but you also have different impacts. You also have different motor units you need. You also have a different motoric you need or a coordination you need within your running technique as it's a difference in between, like you said, sprinting potentially could be a thing to hire your running economy as there's nothing or nearly nothing you could do in running that would improve your potentially improve your running performance and running economy more than integrating a let's say six to eight second sprint for example into your long run as for these six to eight seconds you always need your full and 100% coordination in really sprinting whereas running an easy marathon training pace does not need your whole coordination. And therefore, the coordinative system, let's say, uh, you have with everything you take into account, like nervous system, like uh, motor units, and the ones you use for this speed, for example, uh, coordination itself, impact on, for example, stiffness on your ligaments and passive structures and so on. The whole system is needed at 100% if you go for 80 meters all out, for example. Whereas if you're running at your marathon pace, yeah, not really needed. So therefore, if you want to have an adaptation in all these factors, potentially even a sprint, even if it has nothing to do on the paper with long distance marathon running after a bike, can potentially improve your, your running economy um, and in my opinion, is a good tool to easily integrate into training. So you do not have to talk about straining stress balance if you integrate whatever, let's say two, three, four sprints up to six to eight seconds in your long run. Um, limiting to six to eight 
just to mainly stay in the metabolic pathway you're actually using. So if you are doing your long run, you're having a lot of fat metabolism, best case, if you have the right intensity distribution and we really talk about an endurance-based run. And what you potentially not want to have is an activation of your glycolytic system, for example, every time you start sprinting. If you would sprint for 15 to 20 seconds, that's a totally anaerobic, um, yeah, let's say anaerobic thing you can do and therefore always would activate your anaerobic slash glycolytic system. And that's a thing I would say not in mid-distance or mid um, yeah, mid-distance and long-distance triathlon, potentially in Olympic distance triathlon, as you need your glycolytic system way more um, than you would need it in a long-distance triathlon, for example. Um, yeah, and then again, back to running economy, always again ask yourself what is needed to still keep the training stress balance. I said that about maximum strength training. I'm a big fan of. So normally, I would love to integrate maximum strength training into training of professional athletes, but I just don't know how, to be honest. So I just don't know how I could do that within a 35-hour training week and even at and not only a little bit of impact or strain, training stress, for example, on the whole week, but it's a lot of training stress you'll have. You will have a lot of sore muscles the day after. You have to take into account if you are running after the strength training, are you running before? Do you have your bike ride after? Because it's a physiological question if you do so. So if you would combine strength training, let's say in general with endurance-based training, then for sure you can have benefits from it. But the problem will always be if the risk is not too high and especially not only the risk concerning injuries, but also the risk concerning physiological uh, wise, because activating your glycolytic system with strength training could also mean that you have to a very higher amount activated your glycolytic system for the bike ride after the strength training. And the question is, do you really want to have that? Can you really point out that the glycolytic system is still with the activation like you want to have it for the ride after? Because activating your glycolytic system always means that you inhibit a little bit your fat metabolism. And then, yeah, tons of questions. So therefore, the open answer is on, for example, maximum strength training, which could be a great one in training and scientifically-wise proven that it can hire a running economy. But open answer is I do not know how to do that. And therefore, I would always, especially at the beginning, especially if we talk about age group athletes, start with the easy ones which are less risky to hire your running economy. So which means volume, like we said, potentially three, four sessions, intensity, Definitely needed different intensity that could also be a um, let's do some potentially high intensity aspects on that one um, could definitely make sense in running because you absolutely also have benefits on your running economy due to coordination and so on. Uh, the only thing you have to consider is that the high intensity intervals in running are also under um, let's say that they include 
the adaptation of the oxidative system, which means the interval needs to be longer than 20 seconds, for example, because if it's not as long as 20 to 30 seconds, 30 is always better, in my opinion, than 20, then you'll always have the situation that your oxidative system is too slow to really get up and then work on a high level. That's why I would always use for the adaptation of the oxidative system sessions with intervals even if it's high interval uh, high intensity training that are longer than th uh, uh, 30 seconds so like from 30 on minimum up to whatever you can have like a minute and then a break in between for sure but yeah sorry that was a long answer to running economy so it's not that easy it's a black box you have to trial and error evaluate and check if it works and um, potentially start with the with the easy and less risky uh, integrations in training you can do in your daily training life without using, for example, maximum strength training. Dan Plews is one of the world's very best triathlon coaches. What Dan has done to transform Chelsea Sodaro into a world champion has been simply amazing to watch. And Dan is one of the very few world-class triathlon coaches who makes his training accessible to the public to use for themselves. It's an online coaching community called Endure IQ. It's a platform that has hundreds of training plans written by Dan himself to suit each individual. For example, if you only have time for six to eight hours training because of work and family, there's programs for you, written by Dan. If you have time for 15 hours, then again, there's plans for you, written by Dan. And if you want to really take things to the next level and train 25 hours a week like a professional, again, there's plans for you written by Dan. The best thing about it is that there is so many training plans that no matter who you are or what you do, you'll find one that's exactly right for you. And it costs so much less than what you, you, what you would pay for getting coached by a much, much lower level coach at only $25 per week. And Dan has given us a discount code. So if you use the code HTT15, when you sign up, you'll get 15% off, making it even cheaper again. Also, probably the best part is you get direct access to Dan Plews himself to ask any questions you want about your training, your nutrition, your racing, etc. via a weekly webinar and an online forum. So if you want to take your training and racing to the next level and work with one of the very select world-class triathlon coaches we have, for a fraction of the price of what they would usually charge, then head over to an Endure IQ page. Um, the link is in the description. Use the code HTT15 for that extra little discount and get stuck in. You've mentioned testing a couple of times. This is a two-prong question. What testing do you do to measure um, you know, your professional athletes swimming, biking, running, and overall physiolo physiology? Um, and then what testing would you prescribe or advise for the average age grouper to test their how much improvement they're getting in their swimming, biking, running and overall physiology? And are the two different between professionals and the average age grouper? Um, I'm using my own labs in Germany, um, which are equipped with everything you need to have, like spirometers, lactate measurements, and so on. And only the good stuff, to be honest, because I'm a big fan of also testing quality. Um, and for testing quality, especially in science, so it's more, more the scientific part of triathlon than the practical part, you need a lot of good stuff and expensive stuff, to be honest, 
um, to really have a good um, performance diagnostics to say. Then the question is about the method. Um, if you are in a lab, you have for sure a bigger variability of methods because you can measure O2 uptake, CO2, and so on directly. So it enables you to sometimes also adapt the question. So if you just want to have a test for running economy, and let's do it a bit more um, overall, even running economy for different shoes, for example, is a big thing in these days. So if you want to know the right carbon shoe to use uh, from your brand, for example, who sponsors you, then you potentially have like two, three different options. And what I would like to know is which option, which shoe is the best um, depending on your running economy. And that's a test which would uh, would be different than the typical performance diagnostics, for example. Um, therefore, using the lab is one thing. But now back to the problem of pro triathlon being global, for sure, I can't tell Jocelyn McCauley to... Uh, fly over from from the US to Germany every six weeks or whatever to just do a performance test. We did that once already. We will do that a second time. So we do that potentially one, two, two times a season, let's say. And then you have to have testing methods, which you can do, in my opinion, in daily training life. So what we invented like four months ago is a for example, diagnostic method for cycling, which is based on AI, um, called AI diagnostics, a thing which is absolutely useful for me in training camp because I can do that if I want to in every training block and have a comparison and uh, comparison about how the performance at once. So always the question about performance status itself. On the one side, but then even more important about the physiology, uh, the physiology behind the performance. So, how does your fat metabolism look like? How is your glycolytic system, your oxidative system, and so on? And if you can do that in daily life, so get rid of FTP tests and so on. Twenty minutes, nice to have, but always just checking your actual status without saying a word about the physiology, uh, the physiology behind. So, therefore. The AI test is something I've used in every training camp. I would say I would use it like four or five times a season because the impact in training is very low. The only thing you have to do is two times a sprint over 20 seconds, a four-minute and a 12-minute all-out test. So this is something you could integrate in, yeah, like I said, in every training block. Every intensive session in training is more or less of the same impact. So if you're riding like four to six minutes uh, at threshold, the impact is not does not really differ from, from an AI test. So that's what I definitely would like to uh, or use in training, especially for the bike. Um, running economy is a lab thing. You can't test running economy out in the field as long as you're not using a spirometer. I'm 100% sure that you can't do it in a valid uh, way. Swimming, very difficult. Um, as for sure, measuring your VO2 is not the easiest. There, I'm a big fan of just doing a, like a performance as like a CSS test. So like critical swim speed, and then you can have different applications of it. So I'm a big fan of 200 meters all out, 400 meters all out. With Patrick, we have the possibility to also measure lactate in daily training life, which is a good one. 
But then again, lactate concentrations at certain velocities is a check of performance status, but not a check of the physiology behind. So therefore, I'll always like to add, for example, a 200 meter test, because with this short amount of time, um, it's sometimes easier to try to detect your oxidative system, for example, and if it got an improvement over time by training. Yeah, but as you realize, it's more of not like guessing, but there's always a big potential of interpretation, which is fine. But as I would say, a good physiology test has normally nothing to do with interpretation. So I don't need to interpretate the curve and say it could be this and could be that. I want clear data saying your VO2 max is this and that, your glycolytic system is this and that, your threshold is here. That's the part where you have your fat max zone, for example. And that's a lab thing. You um, maybe excluding the bike, because again, bike has nothing to do with economy. So therefore we are doing the, or I'm doing the AI test in training because it's easy to detect and performance over four minutes and 12 minutes and over 20 seconds on your bike has nearly nothing to do with your economy. So the improvement on from one test to another does not have an impact on your economy improvement in the last weeks of training because you do not really improve your economy. And therefore, it needs to be oxidative system or glycolytic system. And if you can detect it with a method using four minutes and 12 minutes all-out tests, then it's totally great to do so. And it's easy to handle in training. In uh, swimming and, and running, it totally differs a lot because you'll always have this economic aspect. And then to be fair, for example, running, if you really want to detect running economy, you need to go into the lab. And then I'm a big fan of, yeah, tr doing the lab tests one, two, three times a season. And then it's fine. I'm fine on that part. I do not do any practical running tests as I do not really have a certain way and especially an easy one to detect the improvements in running eco uh, running economy slash performance in training. I do not know how to do that. So as I think from my sports science perspective, um, you can't do a 5K all out test. For sure, you could do it if you would be if you would be familiar with running 5Ks all out. But then again, what would be the outcome of the test? It would mean that potentially you have an improvement in performance. Sure. The grade of standardization has to be high. You have to use the same shoes than before. You have to normally use the same track than before. You have to normally use the same time in training. Fine so far. But the only outcome is actual training status or performance status. So you get a threshold, for example, just one value, maybe for velocity and heart rate. Okay, fine. But as you do not really get a physiological background of it, I do not really see the sense of doing it, honestly. And um, yeah, therefore, using the lab in Germany or the labs, using AI tests on the bike and then practical tests on the swim. And um, yeah, on running, it's 
uh, or not only in running, but also in all three disciplines, for sure you have a lot of chances if it not if it's not about testing, but about observing in training that you can have a hint of how your performance developed over time. Let's say, for example, in uh, in 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 biking, for example, you have an objective parameter, which is power output. And then you have a subjective parameter, which is, for example, heart rate. And if you combine heart rate and power output, you sure can have a, an outcome saying that at the same power output, you'll have a lower heart rate, which could mean that your performance improved. Or at the same heart rate, you can have a higher power output, which could mean that your performance improved. Sure, observation is something um, which is a big thing. Um, and especially if you can put objective parameters in, like pace and a power output, for example. And then I would put beside that one, beside all the physiology and lab testing and running economy, I would definitely also spend a lot of time listening to your athletes. So getting feedback as if they have a good body feeling and a good body feedback, they also can tell you if they improved, yes or no. If they are feeling good at 300 watts at threshold intervals, for example, um, yes or no. And this is something I would definitely take into account. So beside any numbers, also listen to the feedback. So for the average age group, or um, whether it's triathlete or just the average non-professional, do you think that testing in general is a little bit of a waste of time and that time should be better spent by actually training and then just communicating? Mm, yes and no. I would say if you have a good method of testing, then a no, then I would definitely say that good testing data and the know-how what to do with it is always a pretty, pretty good uh, thing in training to especially enhance the efficiency and not only do try and, uh, trial and error all the time, which you would normally do in training then. On the other hand, do not spend too much, or let's say it in other words, I always ask myself, what is the outcome of this testing? Do I get a benefit, any kind of know-how I would not have if I would not do this kind of testing? And if it's if I have a clear answer for that one, the clear answer is, for example, I know your running economy when we do a lab test, therefore doing it. If you do not have a clear outcome, then the question does always need to be, why do you spend time on testing? Which does not only include the testing itself, but does also include that you have a lack of training days because you need to start the testing rested and so on and so on. And let's, let's do it even more um, when it comes, for example, to not only performance testings, but all the stuff around you could do, like bike fittings, aero testings, and so on. And and again, I earn my money with testing. So like having a performance lab, having a bike fitting lab, doing aerodynamic tests, and actually building a wind tunnel in Germany just for cyclists and triathletes. So that's where we are at. And that's the one who is talking. Um, but I think testing just to do testings doesn't make sense at all. You'll always have to a question behind why you are doing this kind of testing by now and what can you use from the testing? So is it a thing which can help you to make your training more efficient, for example, let's say, from the testing day on? Then I would say, okay, it's a good point 
to to do the testing. If you do not have a clear answer what the outcome of this test will be or why you're doing it, skip the testing. Go for training, spend more time, swim, bike, and run, and then it's totally fine. I'm not a big fan, for example, of, to be honest, of any kind of race simulations, for example. Like, like we experienced that in triathlon in the last two, three, four, five years. I do not know how long. And I'm always asking myself, what would be my, let's say, potentially scientific outcome out of a lactate concentration on the highway at whatever, a certain power output, especially taking into account that on race day, it will totally look different. So your carbohydrate stores will be more full, less full whatsoever. The stress you have in a competition differs a lot from a normal training day. The temperature potentially won't be the same. Uh, the race tactics and so on definitely differ from just riding your bike and training, for example. Even if you want to go for 300 watts in average, even triathlon racing is not racing in average. It also is depending on where you're at at the beginning of the race, if you want to get a group, hold a group whatsoever. And then in my opinion, I wouldn't have an outcome, for example, out of a lactate concentration because I do not know what to do with it. So if there's three millimole per liter of accumulation of lactate, I would not know what I would do from tomorrow on. So do I tell him to go slower? No, that's not a thing you... You put on your task as a coach if you want to coach a race. I mean, the the coaching would be get that group, hold that group, whatsoever, go in front. Uh, I don't know, some kind of advice like that, but not of uh, please lose that group because three millimole is too much. We just want to keep two because then your fat metabolism is working better. I don't see a sense in there. So therefore, um, even if testing is a big thing in my not only in my coaching business, but also in my life potentially. And that's maybe the reason why I got to sports science because I'm a big fan to see how uh, an impact in training, for example, can improve your performance or change your physiology or change your hormonal status or whatsoever. I do not see a, a sense in some kind of testing and therefore would sometimes say before you from Germany, before you do the typical lactate incremental test where you get a lactate concentration at a certain power output. So I wouldn't do how the application and training could look like. So if anyone is telling you that you have to do way more endurance-based training out of that lactate incremental test, I do not know where that comes from. So he, the one, the, the, the performance tester does definitely know something more than I do because I can't find a training advice in a lactate concentration compared to a power output. So I don't see anything in there. So therefore that would be a thing where I would say, just go on your bike, have a, have a better training day, train yourself. And then potentially the FTP test, even if it's not a testing method I would use in training, but potentially the FTP test has the same outcome and can be easily integrated into training and you not do need to have any whatever kind of rest days and this and that. You can just do it um, uh, beside a an, an intensive session and therefore it's fine. So, yeah. 
So you're not a fan of, of pure race simulations, but what about brick sessions in general? Are you a fan of brick sessions? And if you are, how do you use them? Uh, oh, yeah, good question, especially because brick sessions, for sure, we would say in, in triathlon, essential to do so. Yes, I would definitely make a difference in between pro and age group athletes, because as a pro athlete, I mean, you've done tons of brick sessions while racing in your life. So I do not have to tell you how you feel after three hour bike ride and so on and how the run start will feel like. Um, as an age group athlete, I think I would do it potentially more often as as a professional athlete. And then always, again, it comes to training quality. So is a brick session a session you do after a four-hour ride or after a one-and-a-half-hour ride? The, the big difference, for example, will be that your carbohydrate stores will definitely differ after one-and-a-half or five hours. So if you spend whatever, 60, 70 grams, even if in, in an halfway endurance-based ride per hour of carbohydrates, you can be sure that after four hours, your carbohydrate stores will be slightly depleted compared to a one-and-a-half-hour ride. So therefore, the brick run itself is a completely different brick run after a four-hour than after one-and-a-half. So that's what you always have to take into account. And I would say... For a pro athlete to remind yourself of how the brick run will feel, good one. You can definitely do that. To, for example, and that's a thing I would like to take into account, get some confident, just mental confident out of the brick run is a good thing. So because, yeah, for sure, you have several brick runs in your season. You do that in every race. But by now, we have April. You did not have a race since, like, whatever, Kona or Israel last year. So October, November. So five, six months without a brick run. And I think the more far away the last brick run is, the less your potential confidence is in that you can be able to run at a certain velocity after your bike. And this is something I would definitely like to take into account as that's just a, yeah, like a psychological aspect of a brick run, which is pretty often forgotten when we talk about the sense of a brick run, I think. And therefore, if I would do that, I definitely would always be capable of doing it with good filled carbohydrate stores. So I would never ever say, go for a four hour ride do not eat, which I would definitely never say in general, but uh, let's say not given advice about how many carbohydrates you should take in within this four-hour ride to be safe in the end about your carbohydrate depletion, for example. Um, and then, best case, start the run with good filled carbohydrate stores. For sure, with let's say, some kind of race effort before. If it's just an endurance-based ride, yeah, I mean, I do not know how much good um, feeling you have for your brick run if it's just an easy four-hour session before. So there should be some intensity in the bike session as well. And then don't do the brick run too long. So very rare to really have a brick session of, let's say, one to one and a half hours. And then not only race in like easy pace, but try to, as a coach, try to bring the athlete to some kind of, let's say, race pace, where you would say this is 
340 minutes per K. I can do that for 15, 20 minutes, feeling fine. For sure, it's an effort to go, but feeling fine. And then you can just say, it's a yes. I have the confidence also to do that in a race. Everything is running fine. And then the sense of a brick session is 100% fulfilled. What you normally do not have, in my opinion, is a physiological aspect in training you want to get out of this brick session. So as an example, if you want to have a run with slightly depleted carbohydrate stores, so if you would talk, uh, speak of a typical, let's say, low-carb run, for example, then you can do that in the morning before breakfast and have 45 minutes of a low-carb run, I wouldn't use the brick session as a low-carb run, for example. So physiological-wise, brick sessions honestly are not really a thing for me because I think especially the standardization of how low your uh, your glycogen stores are is very difficult to detect when you have a ride before of four hours at certain intensities, for sure with the carbohydrate intake, but no one really proves if we are now talking about glycogen stores, let's say at 60% of fulfillment or maybe only 40%. And then having a brick session after it's with 60 or 40% of glycogen stores are being filled, it's a totally different run. And the effort for just 40% filled glycogen stores would be way higher to sustain a certain velocity at the brick session. Then you have to do it with more fat metabolism as your body forces you to with that low amount of glycogen stores, for example. So therefore, easy answer, I wouldn't use a brick session physiological wise because I do not really see a sense in the brick session you cannot have uh, beside having this run as a brick session, so just as an isolated run. On the other hand, a brick session has very good aspects. Also, if it comes to the mental aspects, for example, just to get back to triathlon racing, just to be confident about that you can do that, that you can run a certain velocity, that you can run after a four-hour ride, that you can even run after a four-hour ride with uh, several intensities. So therefore, good one. But um, as you can see, tons of arguments um, I take into account before I write down a brick session. So I potentially will do that here in the training camp on Mallorca because, again, I'm with the athlete. I'm riding the bike next to the athlete. I can fuel him. I have gels with me to fuel the athlete and water with me to fuel him or her. And then it will definitely help to get more confident in and to support the idea of getting confident, a confidence out of this brick session. If you do not have that, unsure if I would write it down. And so if someone is doing like, say they're doing those three to four runs a week that we talked about when we were talking about how to become a better runner, if someone was either setting for themselves or their coach was setting them that all three to four of those runs were off the bike or the large majority were off the bike. Would you agree that that's pointless and that you should be doing it less often um, and maybe doing it as more a specific thing or a confidence builder like you talked about? 
I'm sure that you definitely have a lack of quality if every run session would be a brick run because you are missing out so many opportunities of having a well-fueled run. You will miss out so many opportunities of having a rested run, which definitely makes a difference when it comes to, again, quality and training. So if you want to have some intensive intervals, for example, for sure you can also do them with a training impact before, a training session before, or not being 100% fresh, absolutely right, and does make sense at some point. But to if we just talk about black and white, then I would definitely have no brick session more than to have every run as a brick session because the lack of quality while doing these run sessions all as a brick run is so big that I would be afraid of losing too much quality into the run itself, into improving running performance. Um, and it would definitely have an impact on the risk of running. Whereas I, yeah, that's, that's reason enough to me, just to me, um, that I would not do that in training. So if we talk about black and white, then no brick session is better than every time a brick session. So stepping away from from this sort of stuff, I've just got like a, a couple of other really specific questions for you that I guess I'm saving because they're a little bit more controversial um, or like they're 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 complex. Body weight and triathlon—it's something I talk about all the time. And like um, I did a did a podcast with John Rogers, who is the swim coach of Jan Frodeno, um, and then I do like a podcast with. I've done podcasts with other people and they have like these vastly different takes on it. Um, and so I want to get a, a, like a professional coach of your quality's opinion on it. The same way I did with Olav Alexander-Boo and, and Dan Lorang. How important is body weight in triathlon, both at a professional and age group level? Um, I would say body weight has not only a let's say, physiological, physical question, but also a psychological question, especially because it pretty often is a thing about having struggled with body weight and potentially the view of how a triathlete needs to look like, to say it in, in, in general words, what potentially the public would define it to say. On the other hand, concerning physics, you can't find, fight against physics. The, the less body weight you have, the potentially faster you run, the more body weight you have, good body weight for sure, so less body fat, but body weight itself, the better it is for flat bike course. So we also have to take that into account. So if we take Patrick Lange with 63 kilograms of competition weight or race weight, um, we would say in Kona, it's definitely better to have, for example, five kilograms more. So if I could, I would make him a bit taller, therefore a bit more weight in him um, and hopefully not hamper his running performance with that one. Um, uh, what I definitely would do from the scientific perspective or from the coaching perspective, let's say, is never ever to uh, have an eye on body weight alone, but also count body fat or body fat per percentages in it. So whenever I'm on training camp, I could have my left hand over to my 
uh, luggage over there and there I have a caliper in which measures body fat values and that's what I definitely always do when meeting the athletes so just having 10 point measurement of with the caliper to just check the body fat um, they actually have not for reasons to be safe that they could potentially lower it for the upcoming races but also to be safe that it's not too low to still do long distance triathlon. Because what we have to take into account when it comes to body fat, that we are not having a race where, for example, power to weight ratio is the only thing you have to look at. If you have a mountain stage at the Tour de France and the, 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 the finish is at the top of the climb, then for sure power to weight ratio is a thing you have to have an eye on. I mean, you can't skip that one. And every kilogram too much inhibits your performance. That's a fact. That's physics. Easy. If we talk about triathlon, we have to take into account that we are talking about a seven and a half hour performance. So what happens is you are losing body weight while you are competing. And if you would start at, let's say, 100% in shape, what we would define on paper would in shape be. So let's say, for example, Caliper method, 6.5% of body fat, for example. This is, so depending on the measurement you have, you have certain values of, of fat measurements. Let me give a reference. I would say uh, male tr pro triathletes on long distance course best body fat they can have so in so they really should have to say that is something between lowest ever seven to seven and a half percent up to eight to eight and a half percent cyclists can have also six and a half percent because they do not have to run in the end they have their finish at the top of the physics let's say top of the climb power to weight ratio um, and that's it. They do not have to care for anything. They do not have to care, even if it comes to the way up to the perfect body fat for cyclists, they do not have to care for bone density while running training um, and to have any kind of fractures due to fatigue or something like that because they do not experience that in training. So it's way easier for cyclists, in my opinion, to um, go up to the perfect power to weight ratio, including body fat percentages. Um, in triathlon, totally different. Therefore, I'm always a big fan of keeping this last, let's say, half a kilo, that last one percentage of body fat to be safe that the athlete has no lack of whatever substance, whatever that means in a race, um, because... When he starts the run and when, for example, physics concerning body weight and run performance occur, he already performed for like five hours. So he lost whatever, two kilograms, for example, just for fluid, sweat and so on, energy stores, potentially a little bit of fat, not really much, but yeah, potentially a bit. And therefore, I'm a big fan of having the let's say, physics side of body weight or the physiological side, um, the body side. But on the other hand, we have to take into account the whole mental aspects having to do with 
this described way to what we would call the ideal body fat or body weight for a long-distance triathlete. I mean, what is ideal? What does ideal mean? Ideal should normally mean uh, as less body fat as possible with being safe that it's not risky concerning bone density, recovery, adaptation to training, and so on and so on. And the question of where the point is that it's not risky is a totally individual thing. So again, reference for, for example, female athletes, we just talked about the male where I said like seven and a half to eight and a half. If you are a professional female triathlete having around 10% of body fat, that's in my opinion, totally fine. Get and measured with caliper measured again, get rid of the idea that also women need to have like seven to 8% of body fat. That's in my opinion, definitely too low. And too low means in this case that I would think that the way up to these seven, eight, 9% of body fat is too risky when it comes especially to energy availability because what you need to do to have this kind of body fat percentage is that you sure have to have in mind your balance between energy intake and energy expenditure. Let's do it in a just easy way. If you then take into account that your energy expenditure is massive within a triathlon, pro triathlon training week. So we talk about like 30 to 35 hours, or even if it's like 25 to 35 hours, let's say, then it's 25 minimum hours of training where you spend something around whatever, 800 to 1000 calories within this hour. So we talk about 15 to 30,000 calories a week difference in between energy expenditure which you have to sustain for energy intake so that's just the energy expenditure you have from training plus the energy expenditure you have for daily life and keeping that in balance is a big target in training or a big task in training and needs a big effort of controlling also potentially testing because if you want to be that lean to say that, like the ideal world would say, which I do not agree with, just to say that again, then you would need to test it. Then I would make want to make sure that you are 100% safe about your energy intake. So because expenditure differs so much and is so high on that level that you need to be safe on the intake side and you need to make sure bringing whatever something between potentially three to three and a half thousand calories on a rest day but also seven and a half to eight and a half thousand calories on a big training day in and you can't go to the buffet saying this is my my plate i i i now get for three times and i'm 100 percent sure that on this plate we have 2000 calories if i have that three times i have th 6000 calories that's not how it works especially if you have a lot of vegetables salad whatsoever on your plate you definitely can't count that in in an accurate way and therefore i'm not 100 percent sure if that would be really good manageable um, and especially if you want to do that in triathlon 
having an eye on all the other aspects you have to care for. So like training, recovery, sleep, material, uh, organizational stuff, and so on, and so on, and so on. And therefore, I think you can't skip the physics, fine. But if you take the, let's make it very easy, but the orational, the even organizational aspects, the control mechanisms of it. So for example, do we are we talking about a normal cyclist for a female athlete? Yes or no? What's the kind of hormonal status she has? Do we have enough energy availability to not risk any kind of injuries, for example? Then the effort you have to bring in to really get this, let's say, last percentage can be pretty high. And the question is if you want to to really take this step to do so. And I would say, again, let's get back to physics. What are we talking about? Are we talking about five kilograms? Then it's a must-have. You do not want to have five kilograms, let's say too much from whatever we would call is too much. Yeah. So from whatever ideal perspective, even if it would be a normal thing or for example an experience you had with the same athlete from last year so i raced kona last year with i don't know 30 uh, 63 kilograms and nine percent of body weight and it was a uh, of body fat and it was a perfect race then you got an experience point where you can refer to when it comes to finding the perfect weight for the next races upcoming races in this season um and therefore if it's that much of weight i mean sure then we'll have to have an impact on, for example, the energy intake and potentially skip all the bad stuff, for example, which is normally pretty easy as you have this energy expenditure. So to reduce body weight from, let's say, too much to normal, that's normally an easy task. I mean, just skip the bad one, the bad stuff like sweets and whatsoever, something like that, bad food, uh, which also does make sense concerning your antioxidative system, for example, and so on. On the other hand, if it's just like the last kilogram, I mean, is it really worth taking this effort? Is it really something which you want to have for your athlete to really hop on the way of putting really big efforts in for a kilogram, which, again, physics potentially does not really improve your running performance. I mean, does a kilogram make the big difference? It's like, if we put it in relative values, it's like two, 3% of your whole body weight. So what are we talking about? I mean, that's not really much. Taking then into account that on a long distance race, you have five hours of of performance before losing already weight, then you're, you're already nearby. So therefore, does that really make sense to go or to get this effort? And I think it's always a thing you have to be very sensitive of uh, on. Um, same for both directions, not only about losing weight, but also about potentially even gaining weight or keeping the weight in a good balance to not be too lean because energy availability, hormonal status, bone density, everything which uh, is on the same list than than this is a big thing you'll have to keep in balance in training because otherwise you're having lacks of recovery, you're risking injuries and so on. And therefore, I'm a more a fan of doing it in a slightly way. I mean, if you want to lose body weight um, in a really good, 
sense of way, then you have to do it over time. It's nothing you can do in two weeks. You can't say four weeks ahead of Kona that now you need to lose weight or ahead of knees when it goes uphill that you want to have like three kilograms less. That doesn't work out. I mean, taking into account that the energy deficit you could have in training without risking enough energy availability to have, we are talking about like two, three, 400 kilo calories um, a day, for example. And if you summarize that up, I mean, even 400 calories a day would mean 2,800 calories per week in an ideal world that would last up to, let's say, four weeks potentially to really lose one kilogram of body fat. And that's what you want to lose. You do not want to lose muscular or any other kind of thing. You do not want to weigh yourself losing fluids because you skip the carbohydrates for dinner, for example. That doesn't make sense at all. That's not the body weight or body fat we're talking about. So therefore, yeah, always keep the balance. And an individual thing, especially be sensitive. So advice from my coaching perspective on what body weight and body fat or body type, let's even make it more in general, does mean for your coached athlete. Is it easy to handle? Yes or no? Is it a thing where you would say ah, it's it's also psychological, mental-wise a thing where you can easily say, hey, could you step on your scaling whale, weighing scale Sorry, every morning after toilet before you start training because then I could synchronize it to today's plan and I have your actual weight? It's a pretty simple question, but it's not potentially as simple for your athlete. So potentially it's a thing where body weight gets too much of attention in the whole training uh, process. And that's what I would just, as an open question, ask if that's really worth it or potentially focus on other things first. You obviously have two very, like, very strong favorites to win the Ironman World Championships this year, Kat Matthews on the, the female side and Patrick Lang on the on the male side. Not to say your other athletes couldn't do it, but they're two strong favorites that everyone would agree are chances to win their races. Taking them out of the picture, trying to forget about the fact that you coach them, who do you think will win the male and female world championships, uh, uh, Ironman world championships this year? Patrick Lange and Kat Matthews. <laughs> no, just joking. Um I would say, so it's a bit of a question about the Norwegians, to be honest, starting with the male side. Um, if they are on the start line in Paris, yes or no. And I'm not sure about the tactics, to be honest. So about Olympic qualification, uh, Gustav saying that Ironman doesn't make sense for him for the next two, three years. T to be honest, and I say that very uh nicely and and whatever you can have with a hundred percent respect but i do not really believe that these guys are not showing up in these so therefore and that would definitely be a question as sure you'll always have to take them into account I think the Nice race will have definitely an impact on the results because the course is absolutely different from what you normally know from Kona. Um, sure, especially due to the bike. Um, I do not really see a big impact on the environmental conditions. So last year we saw that even with 
extreme environmental conditions we can have like 10 people under eight hours so um yeah a big one so that doesn't seem to be that impact we thought of or we had potentially five to ten years ago or five to thirty years ago um therefore knees will be special and yeah, i mean you told me that i should exclude uh coaching patrick for example but um it's 100% sure that the knees bike course will definitely fit him better than the Kona course because it's more uphill. It has real climbs. It's more technical than the Kona course. And every time, with every argument, I would say that it's better for Patrick than just having a straightforward, just like a rolling course like you have in Kona. Um, so, yeah. Uh, some 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 euros on on him um, in this case, but also <laughs> same as Gustav. We should never ever forget about Max Newman, for example. He's the one which I have the feeling that in public he's a bit underrated, which is not understandable for me after his, especially after his Kona performance, which was amazing. So therefore, definitely include him. But we also have to include people like. Whatever, Sam Laidlow, Norwegians I talked about. I mean, Magnus Ditlev is a weapon, um, especially on the bike. We will see if, and I, I think he's that much of a especially bike weapon that the course will potentially even be better for him than the corner course. So kind of a controversial aspect on that one. But he's so strong on the bike that I think that the gap between him as a nearly perfect bike rider and the ones just being let's say good bike riders i don't want to say average if we talk about the potential to win knees um can maybe be even be, be bigger so therefore definitely count him in um yeah and then i mean again the list is so long so i would definitely think of joe skipper for example always not like underrated but potentially not the number one to to count in to win that race but if you see how solid his performances are if you see that he's capable of running fast which is definitely the key to the to also to the knees win Daniel Backegaard let's count him in so not a good Kona performance last year but if you take his Israel performance I mean he had an be, was first out of the water, had a really massive bike split, doing it all alone against bike riders like Florian Angard, like Zibi Kienle, like Boris Stein, like Patrick Lange, and so on, all not the worst on the bike. Um, and then ran a marathon in 237, I think, or 238, I do not know exactly. And if there wouldn't be a marathon in 230, everybody would talk about the Daniel Backegaard performance in Israel, which was really amazing. And he's such a complete athlete where I would say if he's able to run significantly below 240 in Nice, for example, then he's the one for me who is on the list minimum for the podium. So therefore, not easy to answer. Um, but yeah, let me lean far out of the window, Patrick is my favorite. So therefore, even if I wouldn't coach him, I think I would count him in as one of the bigger favorites. Potentially, just thinking about the Norwegians. Gustav, if you can hear that, just let me know if you're on the start line in Nice, yes or no. And I won't <laughs> talk to the public for sure. <laughs> just just tell me, just to just to be better prepared. So I like to be better prepared. So therefore, just just let me know. 
women's field. Um, wait, 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 wait. Before we move on to the women's Okay, sorry. I can't, sorry. <laughs> I can't just – there's a few things we need to touch on here. Firstly, I am going to ask you to make a pick that isn't Patrick Lang because uh, that's so obvious and okay, easy good. and you've just yeah, listed okay, the entire okay. men's start, start line. So just give me a name. To go out on a limb. Get off the fence. And I think you're going to ask this question to certain people and I want to be the one not picking the obvious favorites and therefore Daniel Buckegaard, just to say something different. So Daniel Buckegaard is was so impressive to me racing in Israel, for sure has the capability of win, win big races and therefore I pick Daniel Buckegaard. That's my pick. I love that. I love that's because... I, no one will pick Daniel going into that race, I don't think. No one will pick him. So I love that. I love that pick. But just to be safe, Daniel, I have an eye on you. So <laughs> you you can't start the race without one of the other coaches not having you very on the top of the list. So therefore, and he will have a fast swim. He will get the first group. He is a strong bike rider. And then he can run below 240 on a 42K marathon. We saw that in Israel. And it was not like 239.45. It was like 237 something. And therefore, Daniel Backengard is my pick. The thing I love about Daniel Backengard is he's consistent. And he doesn't race shit races. He only races good races with strong fields. And he's always there. He's always in the race. The one exception was really Kona last year where he had a stinker. For his standards, he had a stinker. But... For three years, maybe even four years, every race he goes to, he is in that race. And if he if he blows up on the run, he blows up on the run. But he's always there, so it's not, it's not a bad pick. And the course suits him. Um, the the one thing, Bjorn, is you didn't mention Jan Fredina. Uh, so yeah, clear one. I would love to see Jan on the start line um as i do not know anything about his conditions actually i do not just know it and yeah for sure it's not in any kind of way so i had tons of interviews especially after challenge roth last year when he dropped out of the race where i got asked several times if we will have the race jan against patrick again and i was many times saying that I would love to have this race and love to see him being healthy again and love to see the Jan Frodeno. We, I had just one time when we were racing Gran Canaria in 2021, Patrick was racing against Jan, which was an amazing race um, and just fun to watch also. So from a not only coaching perspective, but just from a fan perspective, that was just really great to see as both of them i would say had to really dig deep on that race and nobody just won it or had a good result by yeah just easily doing it and therefore i'd love to see jan and wish do i now talk as patrick's coach wish to have him in second place in these for example um potentially not the first so yeah i, I would have another pick as a coach of patrick on that one but um, yeah, I would love to see him, but I just do not know. And therefore, triathlon, especially long-distance triathlon, changed so much in the last one, two, three years that I just do not have a clue if Jan will be the one potentially at the top of the list in Nice. And yeah, I just can't answer that question. And I can't... 
just have him on the list as I just am without any kind of knowledge about how he's doing and so on. And therefore, I would say, especially with no at least little bit of disrespect for Jan in any kind of way, but in my opinion, the sportive respect also needs to point out more potentially on the Magnuses and Daniels and Gustavs and Christians in this sport because they prove that they can win, win the big races and they prove that they can, whatever, run fast, have a massive bike ride, be first out of the water and so on. And therefore I would pick these guys first, but hopefully, really hopefully, Jan does not prove me wrong. As I said, I'm neutral on this one, but Jan has a amazing performance in Ibiza. I mean, he can show up at the PTO race, win that race and just <laughs> goes home again. And just like he has done nothing else in the last one, two years, than just winning triathlon races, whether it's like mid distance or long distance. And nobody would wonder, everybody would expect him to be very, very good. And, I'm sure if he's on the start list, and that's the only question I would have, if he's on the start list, he will have a massive performance. I'm 100% sure because I think Jan Frodeno is never, ever getting on a start list without knowing that he can win this race. He's too much of a champion of not doing that one. Um, and therefore, if he makes it to the start line, you have to put him on the top of the list. Clear. But the question is just if he's on the start line for me, just for me. So no, without any kind of, um, I do not want to sound whatever um, skeptic or at least a little bit disrespectful or what else being opponent's coach. Um, I just want to say I'm neutral on that one. And if he's on the start line, it's a yes. If he's not on the start line, I mean, that's what we had in the last months and weeks without any kind of wish for him to not be on the start. I would love to see Jan racing against Patrick. So honestly, when I started working with Patrick three and a half years ago, the only question was, or the biggest question, let's say, how is it possible to beat Jan again? And how would it be possible in a race where nobody is having just a shitty race? So like Jan had in 2018 in Kona, Patrick had in 2019 so they never had a Kona meet so far with both being at 100% and ready to race so and when we started working that was the biggest question the biggest question was always how for example much faster do you need to run um, to beat Jan how does your bike performance need to improve to stay at least in the second group minimum, which then has potentially like three, four, five minutes up to the front group with Jan, for example, and so on, and so on, and so on. So motivating as hell to think of a race Patrick against Jan. That's what honestly also myself has kept up also due to the COVID, uh, within the COVID time, always having an eye on if there is once again a potential race Patrick against Jan. Do we meet in Kona again, for example, or now in Nice or wherever um, in a big race, definitely where they both are racing against each other. And I would love to have that. So again, I can just repeat myself. I would wish Jan to be at 100% again, 
like the old Jan Frodeno we all know, and the old Jan Frodeno, just to say that, who, in my opinion, brought some kind of revolution to long-distance triathlon. So whenever you... Biggest respect to Mark Allen and Dave Scott and all the other guys, absolutely, 100%. So without any any, any half-sentence behind that one. Um, but Jan is the one for me who really, especially potentially because I'm from Germany, but who really put a revolution on long-distance triathlon when it comes to professionalizing the sport, when it not only comes to the sport and training itself, but also the whole surrounding about the brand Jan Frodeno, about bringing triathlon to the general public and not making it some kind of, yeah, let's say, sport beside all the other big sports. And therefore, he's, yeah, he's the one. So therefore, yeah. It would be fun to watch. And now I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and just preempt what you're gonna say when it comes to the female race. So I've got to make the rule. You're just not allowed to mention Cat Matthews' name in in this. Uh, I'll jump in for you before you start and say that Cat Matthews will be a part of the female race. She will shape it. I have her as a very likely um, podium finisher. So let's scrap her from the conversation, even though we love her here at How They Train. Who wins the female race at the Ironman World Championships this year? Even more difficult than for the men's race, I think. Just without any argumentation on that one, Laura Philipp will be the winner of Kona in 2023. <laughs> Should I now bring the arguments? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, before you made your pick of Daniel Backengard and the men's, you just listed everyone on the start line. And then with the women, Absolutely. you've done the complete now, opposite and said no yeah, one. And now, yeah, honestly. So now we're going to make it in the complete different way. Just say Laura will be the Ironman World Champion 2023 in Kailua Kona because, and now the arguments, um, absolutely complete athlete. So always a good swim, very good on the bike, um, potentially also better than any Haug, for example. You'll have to include normally, for sure, when it comes to the marathon. But if the tactics work out, if you have a strong group on the bike um, and if and Laura is definitely capable of being in, then there could be potential of, for example, beating any so on the bike and then having enough gap um, in T2 to run a marathon in 247, 248, 249, something like that, because a very fast runner... And then Laura's going to be the champion. That's it. It's simple as that. I mean, just just easy. Just do it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And now my last question for you, Bjorn, and this is one where you have to scrap yourself. Um, who do you think – I ask this because there's a lot of talk about it, particularly because of the Norwegians and, and how many coaches Lionel goes through. Um, and like every year it seems like there's a new best coach in the world and then they get forgotten about a little bit. Who do you think is the best triathlon coach in the world? Dan Lorang. Easy answer. Um, because proven that he has different kind of athletes, female as male, um, extremely consistency in his work with these athletes which is in my opinion a proof of being a good coach so the time you spend together 
and still improve from year to year to year or repeat the success from year to year to year because every time you are repeating success means you need to shape an every year on on its new and you from year to year have to find again the key to be that successful if you then take the consistency in making extremely good races for example from Jan and Annie then there is it's not like god given that they just are fast and win races there's a lot of in my i would be sure that dan would agree but a lot of work behind the scenery um you'll have to fulfill to be that successful especially in the consistency of i mean just winning races i mean just check when jan frodeno became second last time in any kind of triathlon race i don't know when it was but um years and years ago um, and therefore, I would pick Dan, especially um, because not in triathlon, but you can also see in cycling that he proved that he's a fantastic coach, that he has a good, very good mixture of, let's say, the whole science stuff, the sports science stuff around as being a sports scientist and being always up to date when it comes to science. But on the other hand, being very, very soft-skilled, I guess, within the relationship of coach and athlete, which again is proven also by the fact how long they work together. So where I would normally say after three, four, five years, it's potentially good to meet, meet, meet a different coach just to have a different impact, just to get out of comfort zone and so on. But if you see how long... Dan and Jan and Annie are working together. That's a big proof, in my opinion. And therefore, I would pick definitely Dan for sure. The list is long. And just what I would like to point out on that one, we can talk about now, Olaf, 100% sure. I mean, it's a whatever kind of 50-50 decision. And a lot of people will pick Olaf for coaching to no the Norwegians to just winning two world titles and an Olympic title within one and a half year. I mean, how crazy is, is, is that one? And um, absolutely great. But what I think we need to take into account is that we should not only pick the coaches from the top, top, top guys or girls, so ladies and, and men, uh, gentlemen potentially, um, but also to have a look at several triathlon coaches out there because I think there are lots of very good coaches who maybe got a little bit to the side in the last years. Let's point out Lubosz Bielek, who uh, coached Zibi Kienle for like, I don't know, 12 years, was his coach when Zibi first uh, won his uh, Ironman World Champion title and is a coach who has proven tons of successes with different athletes and like not only like two or three different athletes but like 10 to 15 to 20 different athletes all pro triathletes who won not only World Champion titles but also Ironman races and so on and so on and I would say Lubos is maybe not the one you would normally point out at the moment when it comes to the top, top, top coaches because the popularity is a bit missing. But in my opinion, he's not, uh, yeah, or he is as good, for example, as the other coaches, just not as popular potentially. And what I want to say is 
Uh, let's not only look at the triathlon coaches who are pretty obvious, but also to look at the lots of triathlon coaches who found their way to make their athletes or their coached athletes, not like there, it's not a, um, yeah, they do not own them, but um, their coached athletes better and improve them and have that in a good kind of way where they also have a very good sensitive coach and relation uh, coach and athletes relationship and i like that about triathlon that um i mean on the one side you said in the introduction that there's also potential to i don't not want to say fake news but to everyone who can be a coach no matter how his academic degree or whatsoever is which is sometimes risky sure um, but on the other hand, it's a sport where you can develop as a coach also, and you can find your own way and you can find potentially also the athletes who fit to your way. It's not said that the scientific way is always best. And it's not said that the practical way is always best. Triathlon is always a mixture and it's always depending on the athletes you are coaching as some need this scientific aspect and some maybe not some are just the let's say workers and they get their shit together in long and volume uh, training weeks and then they are successful and then it's great i mean as long as the relationship is great and the success is there whatever that means success doesn't mean winning a world champion title success in my opinion means improving not only potentially the aspect uh, the athlete's performance but potentially also the athlete's personality or to help to improve would be even better to guide the athlete. And I think there are way more coaches out there who are really, let's say, world-class without being popular in world-class. I also love what Dan Lorang has done with Frederick Funk. I think that goes a little bit underrated. Yeah, I don't really know if Frederick absolutely. Funk is like the world's most naturally gifted triathlete, but what Dan and him have done together, I think is really underrated. And I still think Frederick's going to be a world champion one day. Um, what distance that's in, I'm not sure. But I always look at the work that Dan has done with him and gone, that might be like more impressive than what he's done with Jan or, or Arne. And also what he did with Lucy last year, like that, that end of season that him and Lucy Charles, that Dan Lorang and Lucy Charles put together at the end of last year was crazy and doesn't get enough credit either because they did not have long. I know she's a really established athlete, but what they did together the year before at the 70.3 world championships and that crazy as well. So yeah, um, he, he's an impressive coach. And now let's add Justus Nieschlag to the list. Um, and now you can continue and continue and continue because Justus at Ironman Lanzarote half distance race. I mean, the mid distance triathlon can't be more afraid of the fact that Justus Nieschlag is not in the Olympic uh, Association at the moment in Germany or not even more. So therefore he concentrates on mid-distance triathlon and that should be something everyone racing mid-distance triathlon needs to have on his list this year. So Lanzarote was, even if it's not the most popular race, but everyone who knows that race and how difficult it is and then to see not only him winning, but the way he wins this race. I mean, not a, not like mark my words, because everyone who has seen him knows that he is definitely going to be successful this year. But why not is Justus Nieschlag, for example, 
I do not want to put any pressure on, but 70.3 world champion in in Lahti, for example, he is definitely someone you have to have on on the list. And that's the same principle. Like they are working together since years, improvement from year to year to year. And now he's concentrating on the mid distance. So we in this mid and long distance bubble will even get more uh, races where, where Yusuf will be way up to the top. So therefore that's the next one. And then, yeah, I mean, you can continue this list, especially taking into account that again, we talk about the popular people. But we do not exactly know about the development of some kind of, for example, Bora Hans Grohe cyclists, where Dan definitely has his 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 fingers in um, to 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 development uh, to, to develop them, and therefore, yeah, I I would count him, especially, let's say maybe mainly because I do know him a little bit, and when we talk about sportsmanships for example and if you can talk about that within coaches same procedure you won't find someone being better than Dan Loran Bjorn I'm going to wrap it up there this has been awesome like this is this is why I got you on because um, I've I've listened to a lot of the stuff you've put out there and I don't know if anyone loves going deeper on the the nitty gritty of of training than you and I love that about you and you know, we've talked about Dan Larang and I love Alexander Boo and, and, you know, Sebastian Kinley's old coach. And uh, I mean, anyone who doesn't know about you they, now, they and listens to this, they now know about you. Your name is one that can go up in that, in that conversation. You are in the top handful, um, in, in the handful of best coaches in the world. Um, and I think the thing with you is you're only getting better. Um, every time, sort of every six months I, I, I listen to you talk, I, I feel like you've learned something and you've changed something and um, I love that about you and, and I can't wait to see what your six athletes do this year. Um, I really can't wait to see what Kat and, and Pat do at, at Kona and, uh, and Nice this year. I'm really excited to watch them and it's, um, it must be a really fun thing for you to, to work with them and, and yeah, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on, mate. I've appreciated all this uh insight you've given us a crazy amount of insight uh, insight into what the brain of a like world class one of the best in the world triathlon coaches looks like really appreciate it thank you and uh, thanks for everyone who who made it for the whole nearly two and a half hours now so thanks for the attention and yeah thanks for having me and uh, hopefully see you uh whatever in some weeks again are you going to be at ne are you going to be at the race at nice uh, yes, sure. Nice. So my my schedule is um, Texas as the next one. So flying home, then Texas, then Ibiza, uh, potentially Hamburg, just because it's like pretty near to my home. Uh, Roth, Frankfurt, um, potentially Lahti, Nice, Kona, yeah, and something in between. So they will definitely Kreisgau. I missed Kreisgau, uh, for example. So a lot on the on the bucket list for this year. So definitely being in Nice, definitely being in Kona. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you you know Bjorn, but me and Iron Man had a little bit of a beef at the start of the year. We weren't best friends. Um, but I will be going to to Nice for the Iron Man World Championships this year and um, doing like a week a week's worth of uh, like live podcasts. You know, like Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, all that le leading cool. into the into the races. So. Um, I'll, I'll see you there. We'll, we'll make sure we go and go and get a coffee and, and talk some triathlon. That will be fun. Thank you. Awesome, mate. 
Have a good uh, rest of your day, Bjorn. Thanks again. I, I really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the training camp. Say hi to Pat and Kat for me. They're, they're you know, good friends of the show. Um, and, and hopefully we get all your athletes on before the end of the year. That will be fun. So therefore, thank you. And yeah, see you next time. Ladies and knees. See you, mate. Bye-bye. So something that a lot of you might not know is that I coach a handful of triathletes myself. I've been in triathlon for over 15 years. I've been to university and done exercise sports science. I've dabbled in racing at the highest level myself, and I've obsessed over this sport my whole life. And something that I now do with all of my new athletes when they start with me is get them to grab a pair of form goggles. In my opinion, they are a training tool every single age group and professional triathlete should have. The real-time data you get while you swim is the equivalent to your run and ride GPS computer in terms of importance for me, and no one trains without those now but a lot of people still don't use form goggles. That's why we see people like Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden and Lionel Sanders using them in their training. They see it like I do, that they're just a, like they're a non-negotiable if you want to be your best. Unfortunately, your wearable GPS watch is almost completely useless in the pool, except to maybe look back on after the session. But even then, it's hard to get it exactly right because you sort of have to click start and stop and it's often not super accurate and we can like cheat ourselves a little bit. If you train for triathlon and you don't already use form goggles, you just don't know what you're missing out on. And if you do use them, then you'll know what I mean when I say you literally will never go back to not using them once you start. The same way you won't ever go back to running or riding with your GPS or power device once you start doing it, especially if you want to be the best triathlete you can be. So head to form.com or just Google form to find their website and buy yourself a pair. Use the code HTT15 for 15% off your goggles. It also supports the show. But honestly, I'd tell you, my athletes, anyone that trains for triathlon to get them, even if I didn't have any affiliation with them, the same way I bought them for myself. That's how important I think they are if, you're, if you want your swim to be the best it can possibly be. All the details for that are in the show notes. 